You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read black books and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you're black or not black. Uh, This week, we are kicking off a three-part series on the book Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition, written by Cedric J. Robinson, Professor Cedric J. Robinson um, of the UC Santa Barbara who passed away a few years ago. The book is dense, scholarly, and difficult, so we're going to take three podcasts to talk about it, and it's got three parts, so that works easily enough for us. And um, and yeah, it's a it's a difficult book. I I had it for, for a while now, and I had kind of avoided it, and then I was looking through books and trying to figure out which one to read, and I thought, well... My Clippers lost uh, in basketball two games, so I'm kind of feeling down. And really, when you're feeling down, what's better than reading about black Marxism and and black radicals? So that's what I decided to do. All right, so uh, I'm going to try to offer a quick premise of what the book is about, and then I'm going to just go into part one and discuss what happened there. And um, really just more or less summarizing what's going on here, because... um, you know these are these are really heavy ideas and and uh, professor robinson wrote this book over the course of 6 years it was first published like i said in 1983 my copy is from the year 2000 um so there's been a lot of thought before or there's a lot of thought put into the book there's been a lot of thought since the book was published and uh a lot of thought since this second edition has come out i am not um going to be able to synthesize 170 years of Marxist thought into a 15 to 25 minute podcast. Um, surprise, surprise. So all I can really do is kind of just give overviews of what's happened and then kind of talk about how I, how I feel about the book. And, um, yeah, hopefully that's good enough for you. All right. So what's the book about? Essentially, let's read that title one more time. Black Marxism, the making of the black radical tradition. Essentially, the idea is that black radicalism is a better critique of uh, capitalism than Marxism is, and it's better because it does not come from the same social forces that provided the base of capitalist formation, and it's better because it predates socialism, Marxism, etc., and it's better because it is a movement actually perpetrated by the people. Now, that's heavy paraphrasing of Professor Robinson's ideas, but um, well, that's what we're forced to do. All right, so that's the general general idea. So he's going to set out to prove that. He's going to set out to prove that idea. And let me let me just throw a quote here um, that kind of can can sum up what he's saying here. Oh, here we go. Marxism, the dominant form that the critique of capitalism has assumed in Western thought, incorporated theoretical and ideological weaknesses that stemmed from the same social forces that provided the basis of capitalist formation. So there you go. That's that first idea that 
Marxism and capitalism come from the same place. And so the negation of one by the other is um, not going to happen because it also contains ideological weaknesses that were contained in the in the first right so because capitalism has ideological weaknesses marxism will also have similar ideological weaknesses and then he goes on to talk about the fact that black radicals um largely ignored by capitalism and then subsequently marxism um are more equipped to critique it that is capitalism because uh of the liberation struggles that black radicals have uh, propagated in places where Marxism appears more or less disinterested in, in addressing. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a brief introduction into the book. Um, so you can see it's going to be heavy. All right. So in order to achieve this goal, Cedric J. Robinson, Professor Cedric J. Robinson, first takes us to Europe. So the first part of the book is concerned with just Europe. There's no black people at all in the first part of the book. Now, remember, the name of the book is Black Marxism. There are no black people in the first part of the book. Eh, maybe one reference to Africans here or there, you know, a couple of this or that or the other references. But the whole book is placed in Africa in that first part, or excuse me, in Europe in that first part. And why does he do this? He does this because, first of all, he wants to show where capitalism came from. Because if you show where capitalism came from, then you will be also showing where Marxism and socialism came from. Critiques, European critiques of a European idea. He wants to show when capitalism was created, what was wrong with it, what were those ideological weaknesses. Right. Then he wants to further explore those ideological weaknesses. And then he wants to point out a kind of lasting um, problem with socialism, Marxism at all that have uh, not been resolved and were never resolved. Uh, certainly weren't resolved by the architects of Marxism, namely Marx and Engels, but have not been resolved uh, subsequently. Okay. So that first chapter, so part one is called the emergence and limitations of European capitalism. We go into Europe and what, uh, what Mr. Robinson does in the first chapter is he discusses the idea that basically capitalism started with racialism. Capitalism relies on racialism to differentiate, to differentiate classes. And he uses as his examples, pure European examples. He talks about Slavs. He talks about the Irish. He talks about um, other Eastern Europeans. He talks about different immigrants going into France, Germany, and England and working in uh, uh, jobs that were, you know, quote unquote, undesirable. We've all heard that term before about America uh, in the modern times. And he talks about uh, Europe in the pre-capitalistic days, um, having that racialism um, and then having it, not in the pre-capitalism days, but kind of in proto-capitalism, but then having it in the beginnings of capitalism, using racialism to differentiate classes. Uh, we're usually familiar with talking with this about uh, this, this idea of racialism and capitalism when um, Europeans went out onto different, uh, you know, they went to Asia and they went to Africa and they subjugated people there. 
uh, we're fine talking about racialism there. But again, Professor Robinson's point is that's not when that started. It started back in Europe. It's always been there from the very get-go. So that's his first part or his first point in the chapter one. And I would say the second point of chapter one is to point out that none of this stuff is continuous, right? He doesn't like this idea of, um, because, so first of all, just very briefly, you know, we should all know that Marxism and socialism, uh, Marx believed that socialism was the inevitable conclusion of where we were headed, right? From feudalism to capitalism to, um, socialism. It it was an inevitability. And this is a very important concept to Robinson because he disagrees with it. So he points out that capitalism has already, uh, before we even get to the idea of modern socialism, way before that, um, when feudalism was still a thing, there was a couple hundred year period between, I believe he said the 14th and 16th century where there, where, where capitalism had fits and starts and that, um, you could view capitalism as kind of this discrete phenomena where it changes by generations and kind of reiterates itself into a new version of capitalism. And that there is no idea of, ah, we went from feudalism and then we progressed up into capitalism and then we will eventually progress out into socialism. There is no, that does not exist. That's all made up. Um, and why is he doing that? Because he's trying to poke a hole in the, well, obviously in Marxism, but he's trying to poke a hole in it as a critique of capitalism because it has a built-in ideological weakness just as capitalism had. So the first chapter concerns itself with doing that. Uh, the the other thing he points out about this inevitability idea is he mentions the, the works of Darwin, uh, uh, Hegel, Marx, and Spencer, And he talks about their contributions to this notion of inevitability and how that language was being used in the 19th century. And it it came to uh, be accepted that, oh yeah, this will just eventually happen. And also it was retroactively fitted onto the things that had happened before it. So for instance, there was this general idea that um, in the 16th century, the uh, bourgeoisie were just created. That they um, that they uh, that they came out of the, the 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 notion of feudalism, and that they created capitalism, and that uh, eventually they will be um, supplanted by the international proletariat, and that we'll have socialism. Um, and so he points out that that's not what happened. It wasn't this inevitable, smooth, continuous line from feudalism to that capitalism thing. It was purely opportunistic. And that's why he talks about those discrete periods where it happened um, in Europe over the course of a, over the course of time. It wasn't just, um, oh yeah, we all gradually transitioned into it. It was more like, oh, there's an opportunity to take advantage here. And so I took advantage. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, that demonstrates just that it, it wasn't continuous. It wasn't a consistent movement. It wasn't an international movement, even on the continent of Europe. And all of this disrupts the general idea that, I mean, if none of that's true, if it wasn't all happening at the same time and all kind of like following the same historical engine 
throughout time in Europe? Well, how could it be doing it in other places in the world? And if it's not doing it in the other places in the world, then you're certainly going to have a problem forming some kind of international proletariat if everybody's on a different clock, which has been informed by your history, culture, etc. And Marxism is very much a theory that relies on history. So that's, uh, that's Robinson's opening chapter. Okay. Um, all of this stuff is, there are about 90 annotations in the first chapter. So the, all of this stuff is meticulously detailed and, and uh, talked about in these chapters. Um, more so than, more so than you can do in a 15 minute podcast, as you might find surprising. You really can't go into that much detail in a 15 minute podcast. Okay. So in the second chapter, um, Robinson focuses on the English working class, the development of Anglo-Saxon uh, chauvinism, the development of the idea of nationalism and how it became more important in the minds of, you know, the industrial proletariat in England than um, the actual dot, the actual idea of international pro, uh, proletarianism. And the idea here, and the way he illustrates this, is the split between Irish and English workers. Uh, at some point, there was a bit of worker solidarity between them, um, but... Any, as any student of history can tell you, that did not last. And uh, even Marx actually um, admitted as much in a letter. He writes something to Ingalls saying that uh, the English will never do anything as long as the Irish are here. They got to get rid of them because basically they can't focus on, you know, organizing around the idea of being a proletariat who's going to um, help enact socialism because they're too busy hating Irish workers who are also in the proletariat. Uh, Marx also goes on to point out about how the Irish are resentful of the English. And um, you kind of wonder why after being subjugated and discriminated against, why would the Irish be resentful? It's odd. So the book delves into a lot of uh, talk about um, Luddites and machine breakers and uh, the Irish famines and the 19th century that led to um, immigration, immigration. Uh, so there, there's a lot of detail in there, but the upshot is is that racialism was there at the inception of uh, capitalism, as we saw in the first chapter, and then at the at the inception of socialism, as we see in the second chapter. And this this goes to point out the fact that, uh, as, as he writes in this chapter, the English working class was never the singular social and historical entity suggested by the phrase, because English working class, and this is now me talking, was made up of Irish workers who were not accepted by Anglo-Saxons who were practicing chauvinism, and uh, it was also made up of other immigrants from different parts of Europe, and there was not solidarity because there was racial racialism in the working class movements that were anti-capitalism at the time because there was racialism when capitalism started. It is all tied. That part is continuous. So Professor Robinson has shown you how um, the development of capitalism is not some inevitable evolutionary continuity, uh, continuous phenomenon, um, but uh, the... Um, the racialism that has existed in uh, capitalism and then socialism is. And so, 
we go to the third chapter, which is titled Socialist Theory and Nationalism. We've spent the first two chapters discussing racialism, and the third chapter discusses discusses nationalism. And so this chapter accomplishes two things. One, um, Professor Robinson points out that modern socialism was started by the bourgeoisie in response to uh, feudalism, um, because again, he talks about how feudalism and proto-capitalism and capitalism were all blended together. But um, he talks about that and he talks about, because he wants to point out that it's it's not a movement from the people, right? So, um, and he quotes Marx, or maybe it was Engels at length, uh, where he says, the development of the industrial proletariat is, in general, conditioned by the development of the industrial bourgeoisie. Only under its rule does the proletariat gain that extensive national existence that can raise its revolution to a national one, and then it continues to go on. But essentially, the idea of uh, the bourgeoisie being necessary in order to um, eventually have a industrial proletariat and then uh, eventually have a revolution, right? So, um, uh, Robinson wants to point out that that that, that, that is a uh, baked into Marxism, and then he goes on to point out that something that Marxism never never reconciled um, was nationalism. And the connection to racialism and, um, and to uh, the fact that it wasn't a people's movement is that um, they didn't account for the idea that people in the industrial proletariat would embrace nationalism over the idea of an international, uh, over the idea of an international proletariat. Um, but uh, as Robinson points out, nationalism consistently disrupted the concept of the international proletariat and continues to disrupt the concept of the international proletariat. Um, Robinson spends a good deal of time in chapter three discussing Marx and Engels' views on nationalism. He concludes at the end of this discussion that their feelings towards it are ambiguous. Um, they even realized that they had kind of, uh, for lack of a better phrase, dropped the ball when it came to dealing with nationalism. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting because at the time they were exiled from Germany but they were in favor of German nationalism because they thought that nationalism was kind of necessary in order to um, have the state be in a condition that could result in a industrial proletariat, right? Because as they said, in general, the industrial proletariat is conditioned by the development of the industrial bourgeoisie and only under its rule does a proletariat gain that extensive national existence. So in order for there to be a national existence, you got to have the bourgeoisie um, pushing forward this concept of nationalism. But they didn't account for the fact that that would interrupt with, or excuse me, would um, tangle with international, uh, pro, with the idea of the international proletariat. Okay. Um, so... From there, we're more or less delivered into modern times. Um, and Robinson goes on to discuss very briefly some 
different revolutionary, um, some different socialist states which have undergone uh, revolutionary social orders but have not become socialist in the way that it was um, it was intended by Marx. And he and he talks about how nationalism is the is a lot of the reason for that. Um, he then goes on to discuss the limits of Western radicalism, and then he concludes the end of chapter three. And really, that that would mean the end of part one. He um he concludes it with um kind of a a summary of what he's going to do in the rest of the book. So he talks about the fact that he's discussed. Uh, he's discussed um, the racial ordering of European society and uh, how that happened without ever going outside of Europe, how racialism was in Europe, how it was perpetuated in Europe, how it bled into nationalism, and how all of that followed from feudalism into capitalism and into socialism, and how that creates an ideological weakness in all three. The rest of the book will be concerned with um, three different moments of European racialism. And they are briefly, uh, the second one is the Islamic domination of the Mediterranean. The third one is the incorporation of Africa, Asia, and peoples of the New World into uh, the world system emerging from late feudalism and merchant capitalism. And the fourth one is the dialectic of colonialism and uh, plantation slavery and the resistance movements. So that's going to be the rest of the book. Um, I feel like this first part of the book, I'm hoping, <laughs> will be the most difficult. Uh, I knew a decent amount about Marxism, but... How much did I know about the English working class and Luddites? I knew a bit about Luddites and machine breakers, but not that much. How much did I know about um, feudalism and um, proto-capitalism? Not that much. So there was just so much density in that first chapter and a lot of, or excuse me, first part, a lot of having to go back and check things. Uh, I feel like I know a bit more about the Islamic domination of Mediterranean civilization and uh, all of the New World stuff because uh, that's more of my history. So the European history would say is not uh, my history, even if I am half white. Um, it's certainly not the history I've focused on, right? I've always been focused on either New World history or um, the uh, African history or African history as it relates to the the diaspora. So I hadn't really focused on that level of European history, that, that kind of detail. So that, I think that's what made the first part, um, difficult. What else makes it difficult is it's just a book aimed at, um, I believe academics, uh, certainly written by an academic and constantly, um, referencing other academics and intellectuals. So, uh, that also makes it a challenging read. But um, it's still a very interesting read, and I've already learned from it the idea that racialism existed in Europe before ever being exported into the New World or the Third World or Asia or Africa. Um, 
you know, perhaps I knew that idea, but it's, it's one thing to like know it inherently or kind of like suspect it. And it's another thing to have the case laid out and proven to you. So I thought that was very good and, um, and interesting. And then the idea that nationalism disrupts the, uh, international proletariat and the overall idea that, um, he makes in the conclusion of the third chapter, which is that ideologies in the 20th century have really wreaked havoc on Marxism and socialism. Um, they're all very solid arguments about, uh, or excuse me, they're all very solid arguments for why, um, the black radical tradition, uh, might be a, a better critique of, of capitalism than, than uh, Marxism, which has been the predominant critique. Um, I will say that um, because of the different ideologies, at least in America, that we hear on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis in the media, the idea of Marxism as a legitimate critique of capitalism seems further away than it's been in decades because it feels like what people think Marxism is and socialism is versus what it actually is, is, um, a giant chasm. So that's kind of different than what Robinson's saying, but, um, it, you know, doesn't make it any less true. It, it might be, it might be the case that, um, that we are too far gone for Marxism to even be a legitimate critique of capitalism. So that might be another reason to read this book. It might be just a better way forward, but, uh, all right. That's going to do it for this week. I'll be back next week, definitely one week from today, with the second part of this book, which is like twice as long, but hopefully um, a little bit more familiar. And and we'll discuss it then. But uh, until then, stay black, stay safe, and keep reading.